Does it work? Yeah? Okay. Uh, I suggest you're taking your seat so that we can start. Um, we have to finish on time, even a little bit ahead of time, because I at least have to take a train. Uh, so that would be good for your lunch. I have to speak up. I think we should. Let us, let us start this um, second panel, uh, which is a quite unusual panel for Bruegel. If you look who are the, the panelists, four of them at least have a strong background uh, in foreign affairs. Um, Maria is more on the trade side, so that's more traditional. Uh, but uh, the other four, uh, Dominique Moisy, specialist of foreign relations, Carl Bildt, obviously a former prime minister, but uh, has been deeply involved in, in international relations in many, um, many occasions and with many responsibilities. Anna Palacio, who was Minister of Foreign Affairs, and Norbert Rutgen, who is the chair of the Foreign Affairs Committee in the Bundestag. Although, you know, they've all have had different also responsibilities, but there is a flavor that's special. Usually we don't do that at Bruegel. But we do that today because we want to open the silos. Uh, we've been too much used to thinking in silos, though there is economics and there is foreign relations and, um, and there are international economics and international diplomacy and uh, there's, uh, there's trade and there's finance. I mean, we are we used to this way of thinking, which is normally um, convenient and efficient, but simply does not correspond to the world we're in today. And this is not just because of Mr. Trump, it's for several reasons which we are going to discuss that we need to develop uh, this conversation between economics and international relations that has been left a little bit unattended uh, in uh, recent years and, and decades. So that's what we, uh, what we want to do in this panel. And we have agreed that we would do it in two parts. I would first ask the, the different panelists of what they regard are the structuring issues for the years to come. Uh, perhaps it will be a way to abstract a little bit from the uh, the present trade conflict with the, the US or the migration crisis, which are very much two reasons why we have to open the silos, but there are other challenges. And what we, I think, want to uh, discuss and understand is if it is something permanent or lasting, or is it something that just due to the present circumstances? So that's the first part of the, the discussion we want to have. And in the second part, and depending on what we conclude from the, the first, I would wish us to discuss what type of conclusion we should draw, uh, not only in terms of concrete policy actions, but also in terms of how we organize policies, how we, uh, uh, you know, uh, from the European point of view, 
you are being very much used, especially to thinking in silos. I mean, uh, this, this type of approach is much more developed at the European level than it is at national level uh, in European countries or even obviously in the US. Um, but uh, what type of conclusion should we draw in terms of the organization, the structure of policymaking uh, in Europe? So that's the agenda, and without uh, further ado, I give the floor to Maria. Uh, each of the speakers has agreed to speak for five minutes, and I'll take my clock. Thank you very much, Jean. I'm delighted to be back at the Bruegel event again, and uh, to sit in such a distinguished panel, and also in front of such a distinguished audience. I'd like to start with some big words, but they are, they are deeply felt. And that is my, my great concern about the state of Western democracy. I am concerned that too many of us take it for granted. Many, many years ago, when I was a new member of the Liberal Youth Party, I learned that every generation has to be one for democracy. And I don't think I quite understood it then or didn't think much about it at the time or since, but lately it has dawned on me just how true and important that sentence is. Every generation has to be one for democracy. We now see that fundamental features of our democracy, such as free media and rule of law, independent courts are rolled back in several member states. And to a large extent, this is brought about by domestic forces. But I want to mention it here today as well because there are external forces involved too, notably Russia and its troll factories, busy sowing division and, and stirring aggression. I consider this hybrid warfare, and it's serious. Secondly, even if it may not be a structural issue, I would like to mention climate change because it's a global threat that will greatly affect us and our economies if we do not get our action uh, together quickly over the next decade. And the more extreme weather conditions, be it droughts or, or fires or floods, will also lead to increased migratory pressures. And this is above all a tragedy for those who are pushed from leaving their homes, but it is also a big headache for the European Union. I cannot recall any issue that has been so divisive for the European Union, at least since I arrived here in, in Brussels in 1995. And lastly, I would like to dwell a bit on the biggest threat I see to our economic well-being. And that is actually a threat to the entire economic world order as we built it after the Second World War, founded on multilateral institutions such as the World Trade Organization's uh, organization, WTO. The international rules-based trading system has not faced such a deep crisis um, for the last 70 years. And it is really a cause for grave concern. It, it threatens our stability and prosperity. Trade has helped millions of people out of poverty. It has helped to create jobs and spur growth, help the free exchange of ideas that, uh, between nations and people and develop understanding. Yet, some now believe that it's time to pull the plug on 70 years of trade diplomacy and instead pursue trade by other means. And there is no doubt that if this happens now, when our economies are so interdependent in a world marked by global value chains, this can trigger a severe global recession um, and stoke a lot of further tensions. 
I think the root causes um, to the current crisis are deep and, and they, reflect, they reflect the crisis in confidence in globalization. I think on the internal side, a lot of people are worried about the rapid change, uh, new technologies and increased competition. People worry about the impact on their jobs and, and the way of living. And immigration and the changing structure of society, in, including, including demographic uh, changes, are further challenges. Even if I would like to point out that I think that migration is partly a solution to the, to the upside-down age pyramid. And on the external side, we see the rapid growth of emerging economies, and notably the spectacular growth of China and its economic model based on direct state intervention. This causes enormous tensions, and we discover now that the WTO rulebook is not fully equipped to deal with, with economies um, that operate like this. Uh, we are not able to quite ensure a level playing field. Now, there are no quick fixes for overcoming uh, this crisis, um, but there are a few things we should not do. For example, we should not close our borders because we have seen time and time again that protectionism doesn't protect. And we should not wish away the fact that the world has moved on since the 40s uh, and that our economies are now more interdependent. Um, globalization is largely driven by technological innovation and it can and should be managed um, and I'm very happy to come back in the second part on what more we can do to, to um, come back to well, the policy responses. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Um, thank you. I took notes of the various points. Norbert. Yes. Thank you so much for inviting me and giving me the opportunity to try to foresee the geopolitical challenges in the next five to ten years. I think this is quite an ambition, and given the fact that we have not altogether, I would say more or less, have not foreseen uh, the geopolitical uh, uh, disruptions, uh, the previous disruptions in the last years, neither Trump, I would say, there were few, or Brexit, or Russia, the new policy, or the refugee crisis, so I think we should do altogether that in a, in a sense of, um, of modesty. However, I would, say, uh, I would say it's now a bit easier than it was five years before because we have seen the emergence of geopolitical challenges and they are altogether absolutely likely to remain, to unfold. I would say nowhere has a pinnacle reached yet. So we are in a period of crisis dynamism. We are facing the challenges we all know from the east, from the far east, from the south, and from the west, we could summarize these challenges as the challenge of unraveling of order as we knew it uh, at the latest after the breakdown of the Berlin Wall and uh, the seemingly victory of the liberal western values and order. Only 25 years later we see that we have a complete disruption and unraveling of, the, of this order. So what are in more concrete terms uh, uh, and in a, in a brief characterization the challenges we are facing? I would like to concentrate on China, Africa and uh, the United States. I think we have 
to concentrate primarily because you, you ask for structural changes. And I think China uh, will more and more evolve as a structural challenge. China is working on different levels, I would say on all levels, on its own global repositioning. It's a challenge for us, and by this challenging the Western world, the West as the dominating international power and force or entity. Uh, it's doing that on a pure power political level, particularly in the region, the South China Sea, for example. It's doing that on a technological economic level and on an ideological level. Um, China is trying to combine the modernization of technology and economy with the modernization uh, of the ruling of an authoritarian state, also based on new technologies of surveillance. So this is a remaining and increasing threat and challenge to the West. The second is Africa, underestimated so far. This underestimation has contributed to the emergence of what we call now the refugee crisis. But it has established itself as a structural pattern. The, 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 the clash of the shrinking affluent North and the growing desperate South. Um, we see the demographies of the two regions and we see the different economic state. And this means that, that what has happened, that migration stemming from this uh, extreme inequality has changed, has not remained where it always took place in Africa, but has has uh, changed or has established a new European reality. European societies and countries, their stability, their security is fundamentally affected and we have to fundamentally, <coughs> fundamentally respond by establishing a new relationship between Europe and Africa. And the third um, challenge I, I would like uh, to, to dwell on a little bit is of course the United States. It's not only Trump. However, it, would be, it will be a, a difference for or, uh, uh, eight years of Trump. Irrespective of Trump, we will, the, the old times of the Cold War will not come back. So we will have to inject more Europe in this relationship if we want uh, to uphold uh, the transatlantic relationship as a, uh, a power uh, which is able to shape the future. Thank you, thank you very much. Um, that's clear, and we are going to come back to those issues. Uh, Dominique, your turn. Um, thank you very much for inviting me. One of the books that shaped my mind when I was a student at Harvard in the early 1970s was Dean Acheson's memoirs, Present at the Creation. And uh, I feel today present at the deconstruction, and, and deconstruction in the philosophical uh, meaning of the term. As a result, I think we are faced with two existential challenges, one of a geopolitical nature, the other one of a more ideological, value-based nature. The 
geopolitical challenge uh, for Europe can be summarized as follows. As the threats are uniting against us, we seem to be more divided than ever in our willingness or ability to confront them. The first thing, of course, is uh, the shift in the role of the United States. I mean, in 1991, uh, we were saying at NATO, not far from here, that we were often of the Soviet threat. Today, we feel orphan of the United States guarantor. The raison d'etre uh, is uh, suddenly uh, shaky. Uh, the United States was the guarantor of Europe, the referee of the world, the champion of democracy. It is no longer any of these categories. And of course, the question we have to ask ourselves is for how long? Is it trendy or is it a trend? Is it an accident of history, a parenthesis, or is it something deeper? Something that analysts sometimes describe as a Jacksonian moment that goes beyond the personality of Donald Trump himself. And Johnson? <laughs> Jacksonian, I think, uh, makes uh, a good historical comparison with this uh, combination of nationalism, uh, unilateralism, and isolationism. Uh, but, of course, it was the 19th century. Uh, I, I realize it's not exactly uh, the same thing. But at the very moment, the United States are no longer what they used to be. There is an alliance that is being shaped between China and Russia. We were very slow in the 1960s to see the beginning of a divorce between Moscow and Beijing. If we had seen that divorce coming earlier, maybe the Vietnam War would have taken a very different path. But today, in 2018, I think we are equally slow to see the coming together of uh, China and Russia. Of course, in a reverse equilibrium, uh, yesterday, China was the junior partner of the Soviet Union. Today, Russia is the junior partner of China. But this being said, this geopolitical challenge of a particular nature, which in the minds of Kissinger would mean change, shift, if not reversal, of alliances, is met by a, by a passive, deeply divided Europe. It is at the moment our challenges are uniting in front of us that we are divided in terms of values. And that is, and I will end up with it because I will have remarks in the second part, the second existential challenges we are facing in the worst manner at the worst time 
we are divided on the essential, i.e. values, and the fight between classical democracies, which sometimes seems like endangered, rarefied species, and illiberal <coughs> democracies, is really the most important challenge <coughs> to, my, to my mind, and the one that frightens me even more than the geopolitical one. Thank you, thank you very much. Um, again, um, this, there seems to be a degree of consistency what, in what uh, is being said, but we'll see if it continues with, with you. Well, I fear it will. Um, so um, this is not going to be a sort of a particular uplifting morning in terms of uh, the mood of Europe or whatever it is. Um, but not trying to be too repetitive, although the risk is, of course, there. Most of us have experienced what I called um, a golden quarter of a century. After the uh, fall of the Soviet Union, the beginning of the opening up of China, the liberal revolution that we have all over the world, the golden age of globalization. We, of course, uh, roughly a decade ago, entered into somewhat more choppy waters both in terms of geopolitics and in terms of economic development and in terms of technological disruption. And I think that we are now realizing that we are, have entered or are on the threshold of a new age of disorder that is going to be with us for quite some time to come. The background of this we can discuss endlessly. If you listen to part of the U.S. debate, and U.S. is still the place where you have more of a profound debate on where these things are heading or not. You find them saying that, okay, uh, we search for order, we search for engagement, we thought that that was going to lead to a more sustainable order. That failed for a number of reasons, and then you can blame it on the Russians or blame it on the Chinese, depending upon your taste. And accordingly, we have to adjust to what has happened. That is one thing, but what really worries me is that there are X numbers of actors that take the next step when they look at this and say, yes, it failed, it was more difficult, it didn't produce the results that we hoped for, but we are now, we are now abandoning the very ambition of order. Disorder is not only where we are because of a number of reasons, disorder is where we want to be. This is the state of the world, as it's always been, and we have the interlude of trying to get order. Now it's disorder that is the norm and the ideal, and disorder is an age of fierce competition between strong competitors using whatever means available. And that we see. We see it somewhat or the less so far, thanks God, in the military domain, we see it clearly more building up in the diplomatic political demand, uh, domain, in the geopolitical battles that everyone here has been alluded to. We see the fraying of the consensus on the economic and trade side, as Maria was alluded to. We see a new form of economic financial battles being fought. Uh, looking at the other side of the Atlantic, the the command center for the global battle is not the Depart Department of Defense, but
the Kibon Center for the Global Battery is the U.S. Treasury. And uh, they can use instruments inserted in every single economy in a ruthless way, which was unthinkable before. And the domain is, to a very large extent, the technological demand, the cyber domain stretching from outer space to cyberspace, where there's a battle for dominance, which is dominated by the Americans and by the Chinese, where the Europeans haven't, or are only starting to grasp what's going on, but where other disrupting actors have the ability also to make themselves known in a way that uh, goes well beyond what we have been used to before. So that is just to indicate, I think, where we are. Um, and from that, of course, follows a couple of challenges, to put it very mildly. But all of those we are going to sort out somewhat later. <laughs> Thank you. Um, Maria. So uh, Anna, sorry. Well, I could uh, just say I agree and stop there. But allow me first thank uh, in Bruegel for having me here. Uh, Bruegel is always food for thought. And on your desiloizing or decompartmentalizing, I think if, if we know something today is that this uh, uh, Clinton 92 campaign motto, it's the economy stupid, is not any longer true. It's not just the economy stupid. And in my professional life, I have always been under the, the superiority, intellectual superiority of economists, at the World Bank especially, all the development, all this, and you would say order, and I fully agree, I think that this is one, but the order and this is the Washington consensus when you think it at the extreme. So we are in a different world where I mean, politics and geopolitics just have come to haunt us and we need to address it to put, to bring back a, an order, but it will be a different order. So not to, to try to say something be, beyond this. I mean, the European Union is the, the poster example of this liberal world order. Rules, we are made on and by and I would say even for institutions, by institutions, through institutions, and, and legal, law, and law. And what we see today in the world is that really, the law and institutions as the conduit to, uh, to structure societies is on, the, is on the retreat. I mean, Maria has a very good point. And I think that we Europeans, we need to, to adapt. When we, when, we, hey, when we look around us, I mean, the big successes, until proven the contrary, the Paris Agreement, it's not legally binding. We Europeans wanted it legally binding. It is not. And frankly, I think that we have to accept that this is the new world. The GCPOA, it's not legally binding. It's not a legal instrument. Our agreement with Turkey, I mean, come on, a paradox. We Europeans, we agree on a very, it's exactly the, 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 ex, the, I mean, the, the most clear example of what international public law looks like, Monsieur Piris. But we just went away from the, from the law. And this is what I think that for us Europeans is the biggest challenge. How 
to keep our, the essence of our institutions, how to keep the essence of what we are, which frankly we cannot take out of this importance of the law and the institutions, how to keep this, and at the same time, how to compete in the world, how to reach ag agreements. If we take a look at the last uh, uh, trade agreements, they are agreements that are principal. They are not detailed agreements that we used to do, we used to do which is a bit where we are going. We have to be, I mean, to be realistic uh, from in, internally, because this is also true internally. The position of, of Poland or other member states would have been unthinkable 20 years ago. And if I go to the internal market, and there was a very interesting debate. I mean, come on, in the services, you have the regulation on audit, which is not, I mean, it's on migration. The regulation on audit has, if I remember well, 24 uh, I mean, parts of articles. So 24 parts of articles where the member states have options, which is absolutely contrary to what the regulation is. So. We have to understand that the moment in the European Union is more intergovernmental, but at the same time we need to keep our institutions because this is what we are, is much more power driven, it's more uh, transactional, it's more ad hoc. And you know what? Uh, we need to be realistic and instead of uh, crying and whining and just complaining, just address it, address it. and and. Be clear about what we need to keep about our institutions. And I Thank you. There is considerable consensus on the panel, I would say, um, on, the, uh, on the question, are we facing a permanent change or are we facing uh, uh, a shock, an event? Uh, on the nature of the challenges, uh, you know, you didn't use exactly the same words, but uh, you were really describing the same type of situation. Um, I would like to give an opportunity to those who disagree, uh, especially the economists, uh, to say why they disagree. Nicola was, uh, this morning was saying in the first session, uh, you know, uh, seen from the US, it's just chaos, and chaos was fin will finish. Um, that's perhaps um, you know, um, an, an objection to what we, we're saying. Perhaps there are other objections. Before we move to sort of developing on this common basis, let's uh, see if it's being challenged by some of you. Yes. Oh, you need a mic. Yes, you do. Okay. Thank you. Um, I'm afraid, from what I've heard, that probably we have not yet well drawn all the consequences following from two important respects. One is the multipolarity that has all the attributes of realpolitik and the resurgence of nationalism that impacts terribly on European Union. A union that never had in its DNA geopolitical thinking for reasons well known. The key question is, what we heard all the speakers now is what we stand for a soft power. And the key question is, 
Can this soft power approach of the European Union be sustainable in a new environment that we face? And please, can we concentrate in what we, you consider the three probably more important questions facing Europe at this regard, at this moment? Obviously, as Anna said, Europe is thinking in geoeconomic terms. You're just what you said, you're talking about economics and law. But we know that in Washington, in Moscow, and in Ankara, there are not angels living there. And we have in the immediate future to save policies, to take stances. Otherwise, as Dominique said, this union is the next phase. Please, can you tell us then? What do you think about the relation with the U.S., especially NATO? How are we dealing with Russia and especially with their concrete issues of Ukraine? And third, how we handle Erdogan? In my view, there are important questions to be focused right now and not wait in the next 10 years. Okay, please go on. Uh, Bill Drozdiak, uh, Brookings Institution. Coming from Washington, I was hoping to hear uh, from uh, European voices a more a positive uh, <laughs> approach to the opportunity created by the abdication of American global leadership. Uh, I would, so I, I wondered if you could turn your, your thoughts to seeing how the European Union um, and uh, its, uh, its institutions could sort of lead the West out of this uh, crisis and perhaps uh, give more encouragement to those of us Americans who uh, would like to still believe in the transatlantic bridge. Thank you, Bill. Uh, yeah, one here. Stasinopoulos, formerly with the European Commission. Uh, I think Dominique Moisi mentioned the Russia and China coming together. I would like uh, just only to focus on the role of China now, uh, given that China since 2013 has taken a lot of initiatives, trade initiatives, infrastructure development, together with institutional changes. And I'm wondering, uh, some people uh, will have the feeling that China is attempting to turn the international trade system to its favor. Uh, and coming back to the point that uh, Dr. Rodkin mentioned, is, it, is this a threat? Uh, what Europe is doing, well, what the United States is doing, whether facilitating this kind of probably long-term strategic objectives of China. Thank you. There was another question in the back, and then we come back to the panel. Yeah, with Adush with uh, OCP Policy Center and Bourgogne. Um, it's not the end of the liberal economic order. The liberal economic order is stronger than it's ever been. China is a more liberal economy than it has ever been. Russia is a more liberal economy than it's ever been. Cuba is moving towards a liberal economy. Um, the liberal economic order has survived much worse crisis 
than we're looking at the moment. It survived the Great Depression, and it survived uh, uh, the Cold War. Uh, and President Trump certainly wants an isolation of the American economy, but he's not succeeding. The Korea trade agreement changes things at the margin. The Mexico-US trade agreement is a bad agreement, but it changes things only at the margin. Thank you. So thank you. Uh, let's let's come back to the panel. I think I think that perhaps we have to address this objection. You know that uh, uh, yeah, I mean the, the liberal economic order is alive and well. Second thing I, I think we should be discussing is this uh, notion of uh, the change in our DNA, uh, as you put it very very rightly. I mean, you know, uh, if we are in this transactional world, uh, in this world where power matters much more, uh, multipolarity, uh, can Europe adapt to it? Uh, or, or is Europe really built in such a way that it cannot adapt to a transactional world? I think that's a fundamental question that we raise. Um, and uh, that links to this uh, issue of sovereignty, you know? Can there be a European sovereignty, as Macron, uh, said, um, or is it is the notion of European sovereignty just uh, an oxymoron? Um, then, uh, I think there, there are a number of other issues we may wish to, to, to address, but there are so, sort of principal issues about uh, what uh, is happening and uh, about the ability, the fundamental ability of Europe to, to respond. Who wants to, to address that? Norbert, you want to start? Perhaps with this point of power, sovereignty, European sovereignty, and Europe leading the West. I'm, I'm, I consider it to be the core question of Europe's future to develop the will to acquire power. I would say perhaps a soft power than a hard power. Uh, what power ever, but we have yet to define our role in the world. We have to transcend Europe from an internal project to an external project. And this means that we have to, uh, that we have to uh, develop the will to acquire power in order to, to execute uh, our will in order to get something done. So this is what, it, what is at stake and which is the crucial point, in my view, whether we are getting more relevant or we will get irrelevant in a new scenario of, of, of reshaping uh, of international powers. So will we be one of the international powers or not? I think this is the future question for Europe. I absolutely do not believe, given the horizon for five or ten years, that there is any chance, realistically, for Europe to lead the West, to substitute the United States, or to even acquire a kind of European sovereignty. We can and should uh, 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 develop ourselves, we should get more 
European, we should get more united, we should uh, develop and strengthen the European pillar within the transatlantic relationship, but the United States remain indispensable for European future in the horizon of at least the next decade. So perhaps I'll leave it at that. Yeah. Can I ask you a question yep. on Germany specifically? Uh, because we've had the interview of the Chancellor in the FAZ this summer, uh, we had the, uh, the, the op-ed by uh, Minister Maas. Uh, how do you see the change uh, in the, the German view on those issues especially? I would say unfortunately there is not, not a change. We, we are on a, on a very short loan curve in Germany. We have to adapt differently due to our history than other European nations. We have a, an unfolding debate about Germany's role and so on. But we have not got stronger eternally in the last year, for example, in the last month and the last year. And this has, of course, some implications on our uh, foreign policy aspirations. But nevertheless, this debate is unfolding. We are more active in debating this topic. But Germany, I would say, is the number one European country which has to take the decision. Are we ready to join a European powerful foreign policy? However designed, I think it's not likely to happen on the on the level of the 27 members. I think it more likely to happen uh, starting with a core group of the willing. Uh, France and Germany have to be a part of that, but not only the couple. But we have yet to take the decisions, are we really ready for aspiring a powerful geopolitical role? This is not in the DNA so much, but it has not developed as a DNA of Europe. We started a, bit, a little bit of that in the 50s, but of course it has not been in the DNA of post-war Germany, and we really have to adapt our identity, our own definition, who we are, who do we want to be as a part of Europe in the world. Thank you. Maria? Thank you. Well, at least in the area of trade policy, EU member states are more united than ever. Uh, and I think President Trump actually has helped us uh, arrive at this point. So ever since he moved into the White House, member states have been saying, well, EU has to fill the vacuum. Go on, Com Commissioner Malmström, we want more trade agreements. And we now have a very ambitious bilateral trade agenda, and the EU is also working hard now on shoring up the multilateral uh, trading system uh, through different ways that I'm happy to elaborate on, on a little bit more. So even if we are divided in, in other areas, at least at least here, uh, I think we have seen positive developments over the last couple of years. But then maybe just a word on, on, on China, if I may now. Uh, because I, I really think uh, that is key. I would, didn't have time to elaborate too much in the, in, in the beginning. Uh, because I think that a lot of the tensions we see today uh, are caused by, by China. Um, and it, it's... Uh, and I think that there is, there is, unfortunately, the response in the U.S. is, is you know, steel tariffs and maybe car tariffs. Uh, and that takes away the, the focus on what we really should talk about. And that is the way that the Chinese economy is subsidizing big time one sector after the other. And that, it causes so much tension and there is scope for so much more unless, unless we get China to, uh, 
to agree to adapt its policy and create a more fair uh, environment and, and a level playing field. Uh, they seem to have seemingly bottomless financial resources um, and they are also engaged in restricting uh, investment into their country and te forced technology transfers, uh, etc. And this, th this really, really, really jeopardizes the effectiveness and the relevance of, of, of the WTO. Um, but my hope is that since China has benefited more than anybody maybe over the last decades, it will also see that it's time to engage in reform. And we are happy can to work with them. Can I ask you a question? It seems we, we agree uh, with the US that China is a problem. And we agree with China that the US is um, attacking the WTO and that we should be saving the WTO. How do we manage that? Well, we have to, we actually work with both sides. I mean, with the, with the US, we have both a trilateral set up at ministerial level, uh, EU, Japan, US, where we try to build confidence in the multilateral system. Uh, we have, of course, ever, well, we have tried also to build a positive bilateral agenda with, between the EU and the US um, since President Trump um, entered office. It's been going so-so. Um, um, and we now are on a new track since July uh, when there was this uh, meeting between President Juncker and, and President Trump. Uh, let's see where it will take us. We also set up a working group with the Chinese at the ministerial in July, EU-China, to talk about WTO reform. Um, so we, we try to talk to everybody. Um, yes, but if you're thinking of the other two, yes. don't they share a, an interest in uh, not having us part of the discussion, of, having, of dealing bilaterally with each other? Because they are two powers, right? And we are coming here to tell each of them, play by the rules. But at least I think that the Chinese see an importance in saving the WTO. Uh, and I hope that the Americans do as well. It's maybe just negotiating tactics that we are not used to. On, on that particular point, I mean, in the old world that was a couple of years ago, the logical thing would, of course, have been for the European Union and the United States to sit down and frame a China strategy. Yeah. Uh, the White House doesn't want that. I mean, it's, ve it's very clear. They don't want it. They want to do it on their own, and they don't want to do anything with the Europeans that makes the Europeans more relevant. That's the brutal truth. Um, others in Washington might disagree, but at the end of the day, the White House is the White House. But a couple of other points. Uh, there was a gentleman down there who said the liberal economic order is still okay, uh, and it has a lot of resilience. I agree with that. In, in terms of the economic interaction, yes, the forces of integration of globalization are resilient and strong, and can't be killed off that easily. So I can agree with a lot of that, but I, make, I would make the difference between the liberal economic order and the liberal order, because the liberal order does include quite a lot of other things, and if those other things go wrong, then it will have quite an impact of a negative nature also on the economic order, but that is stemming more from the other parts of the disorder of the world than from the dysfunctionality of the international economic order in itself. Then, trying to be operational, what should we do? Europeans, Brussels bubble, whoever we are. Um, European sovereignty, yep. Is that a realistic? No, but say not really for the foreseeable future, probably correct. Is it something worth thinking about? I think it's absolutely essential. 
Is it worth working in that direction? Yes, I think that is also essential. What can be done? Well, in the military domain, there's an element of discussion, not very much in my opinion. There's more rhetoric than reality, but you have to start somewhere. Uh, and there are things that could be done and should be done. There are some extremely complex issues that need to be addressed. And notably, when you start to address the nuclear issue, it gets very tricky indeed. And there is difficulties in seeing every, anything that could resemble European sovereignty. Uh, Dominique is French. Uh, Nobody's perfect. Um, but in, in, in other areas, we need to discuss somewhat more. Trade is one issue, as Maria alluded to. The financial issues. I mean, you see what's happening, as I said, is the US Treasury more than the Department of Defense or the State Department that is running US policy at the moment. And if you only take the example of, um, I'll take two examples at the moment. One is, of course, the ACPOA and, and Iran and the US sanctions. Um, the US, of course, has the right to impose sanctions on Tehran if they want to. It's in breach of the agreement, but anyhow. But they are not doing that for the reason they have no relationship with Tehran. So what they're doing de facto is imposing sanctions on Europe, which means that they are denying Europe the right to have an independent foreign policy. And I find that deeply disturbing and insulting. And we should look very seriously at the ways in which we can counteract this. Is this difficult to do? It's immensely difficult to do. But I find it somewhat difficult to accept that, for example, institution that we have built up over the years, the European Investment Bank, defers more to the US Treasury than to the European Union. Is that the way it's supposed to be, really? And which are the consequences of that? It will encourage the US Treasury to go on with the economic financial warfare of this particular sort, a completely independent of any political dialogue that they might have with the European institutions. And you see also, to take another example that doesn't, doesn't concern us that directly, see what's happening now in the relationship between, between Turkey and, and, and the, Erdogan and Trump, to be precise. We see them escalating this conflict with tariffs and sanctions and blacklistings and whatever. It, it, it is a fierce game that is played, completely outside any rules, both from the American side and from the Turkish side in this particular case. If that is the model for the future of different sort of battles that are being fought, then we must ask ourselves, do we have the instruments as Europeans to engage in that type of world that we see emerging? The answer is, of course, no, we don't. And we need to seriously discuss how we can move in, in the direction of perhaps not sovereignty, that's too far, one step too far, too fast, but resilience of our structures, resilience of our policies towards the fierce competitive nature of this particular world. I took examples of Mr. Trump, obviously, because that's a close relationship for our side, but I don't think either Mr. Putin or Mr. Xi would be alien to any of these behaviors that I alluded to here. Yeah. I would like to make two comments. One for our Brookfields Institute uh, friend. Hey, honestly, I fully agree. Uh, United States is still the indispensable nation if we want to keep us 
the order, a new order. It will be a new one. But, but what is the good news is that we have discovered that, well, beyond uh, Trump lambasting one of the cornerstones of this institutional uh, international order that was the presidency of the United States of America, people would hate the U.S., would hate the guts of the U.S., but they would respect the presence. The, the, it was this idea of autoritas, autoritas out of potestas, but autoritas that the presidency. This is gone. And thirdly, it will be difficult to restore. But what we are discovering is that there is a lot of United States beyond that, from uh, states, cities, and this is very true in the, uh, in the Paris Agreement. Companies, just the, co I mean the society, so that's good news. Now, I'm, I would like to make a, a comment on, on Carl's comment on the liberal <coughs> order. You know, today we have these kind of oxymorons, illiberal democracies, and we accept that, that illiberal democracy, that goes. And we have this idea of dirigist liberal economy. <coughs> and we are there. Uh, what is the, the issue behind this? Is what the, 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 the foundation, the metapolitics, the foundation, the philosophical, and in the end, the Weltanschauung that you have behind, which in the case of the classical approach to liberal world order, as Karl would say, you had rational legitimacy, which in the end, according to Max, Max Weber and according to the model, it's not that we always fulfill the expectations of this model, but the model was that the rational legitimacy, the best example was this, this legitimacy through the law. And this gave legal security, which you don't have in Cuba that you have mentioned. And I would say that Morocco, for, for our friend from OCP, Morocco is, is, a, is an exception. Morocco has integrated a big part of our aquí communauté, etc. I wouldn't speak about Morocco, but let's take your examples. Cuba, Cuba, the insecurity is absolutely there. Tomorrow there can be a different decision by the power. This is true in China. I mean, this is a very different situation from the classical approach of this liberal economic, economic order. One last word on soft power. <clears throat> you know, this was a mirage that the, the, the European Union could lead a world where hard power was out and it was about soft power. This is, this is gone. And of course, this is why one of the areas where the European Union, I fully agree with you, we have to get our act together is in the area of defense. We cannot just go free riding on the, on the United States uh, through NATO. But by the way, this is not Trump. This was the farewell speech by yeah. Gates in 2011. Uh, so it's not new. Um, well, I will stop there because of course, this is a fascinating discussion. Uh, I wanted to move, since you didn't give me the floor, oh, on that issue, uh, very briefly, um, on the issue of power and the DNA of Europe, uh, trying to answer partly uh, the question posed by our friend from the other side of the Atlantic. 
Um, is Donald Trump a golden opportunity for Europe when it comes to geopolitics? The answer is probably no. Uh, there is no agreement on fundamentals amongst European powers as to what our policy should be vis-a-vis -vis Russia, for example. You find variations. Uh, and clearly now, there is some kind of logic, a logical divide between illiberal democracies who tend uh, to uh, want to come closer to Moscow and classical liberal democracies who maintain that uh, there is something like a geography of values uh, that should not disappear. And now I come very quickly to the, the DNA of Europe. After World War II, I would say geopolitics was nearly a dirty word in Europe. It was geopolitics that led Europe to uh, its suicide. And uh, it's very difficult to overcome completely uh, that legacy. Uh, in Europe, there were two countries, uh, and two countries only, that felt at ease with power in the classical sense of the term. And right now, one of these countries is trying to leave the European Union, that is Great Britain. I think Brexit has a major geopolitical impact on the future of Europe. And I find it very ironic what it is happening today, because uh, after World War II, uh, Henry Kissinger wrote his thesis on a world restored, and he wanted American diplomacy to be Europeanized in the sense of Bismarck, Castlereagh, and Metternich. And today, the Americans, from Bill Gates to other, are trying to say, well, can't you go back to this period uh, where really you had a geopolitical vision and when you wanted to play a real role in the world? And of course, uh, we are uh, deeply aware that this can be a very dangerous trend. Do we want to play geopolitics the way geopolitics was played in the 19th century? Should we make big reversal of alliances? Should we see the Americans today go the direction of Moscow to balance China the way the Americans yesterday at the time of Nixon went the way of China to balance the Soviet Union? You can see the consequences of that. Okay, can we, uh, yeah, I'll open the floor. Uh, can we go back to the point you were making about the sanctions, the Iran um, sanctions? Uh, because I think that's a clear and very present uh, example of uh, you know, the, the difficulties we, we are having. So there was, um, I was referring to it, there was this uh, op-ed by the, uh, the German Minister of Foreign Affairs saying, you know, we should build a, a European SWIFT. Uh, actually, SWIFT is European, so you know, that was not so much, the example was not much so well chosen. But when you say the, the Treasury is running the, the, the show and the, the, the Treasury is, 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 is the instrument, um, in fact, what's happening 
is the sheer exercise of power. I mean, it's, it's telling people, individuals, institutions, if you don't abide by US law, you're going just to be banned from having access to the US physically or to the US market uh, financially or to the US uh, market as uh, a provider uh, of products. So is there something Europe can do about that? Uh, you're perfectly right. You're saying those are sanctions against Europe, in fact. Is there something, what's, what's the agenda? What's the realistic agenda for us? Uh, I mean, let's be clear. Uh, there are two options, and I think there was an interesting blog by Guntram and uh, Gregory Kles uh, about, about that. I mean, they're, they're, they're the option of saying, let's build a system that will protect us from this type of pressure. And there's the option to, that says, uh, there is no pro system that can protect us. Uh, the only way is to retaliate and to use counter pressure on the US in the same way the US is using direct pressure on us. I would think this is an excellent question for Bruegel to answer in the next <laughs> six months. Yeah, because it, it, it really requires some deep thoughts yeah. on how these things work. Um, do we want to build something that is completely sovereign and independent from the US? No, the transatlantic economy is sort of very important to us. But we need to have something to have the resilience of our policies and some defense against being sort of hijacked in the way that we see from the Trump administration. Um, I, I, I was rather critical of the EIB decision, as you might have noted. Um, and, and of course, if there was someone from EIB here, they would say that, well, the Americans could have closed down the EIB. Well, would they? Um, and isn't the risk that when caving in on that one, the next battle is gonna be the swift battle in November. That's gonna be the battle where the US Treasury will threaten to close that one down if we don't agree to do what they do. Um, are we gonna cave in on that particular battle? And which are the consequences of that? for the even notional sovereignty of Europe. Uh, this requires some thoughts, so I don't know what you do at Bruegel, but this could be one idea. <laughs> I would be very interested to get advice. Uh, we have discussed it several times in our committee, and our resume so far is that there is no way uh, to establish a Euro-only denominated international financial transaction system. Given the interwoven uh, fabric of, our, uh, of the international economy, uh, particularly from a German angle, I think there is no option. In the case of Iran, you would need companies not engaged globally, but merely concentrating on Iran. What companies are that? And you need to have a bank not internationally engaged, but mainly engaged in financing uh, these uh, economic relations between Germany, Europe, and Iran, and other uh, rock states. So I think it's, it's not realistic, and it's really a very, very sore fact that so far, as my analysis reaches, but I'm, I'm really open to get better advice and insights, that on this financial field, we are, there is, I don't see how to, how to achieve European financial 
sovereignty, and it's really a, 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 quite a disaster because it has so fundamental implications of our ability to do a, a, a to pursue our own foreign policy, where we have the big divides concerning the Middle East, which is our uh, which is our neighbourhood. So this is a, a real structural fundamental restraint for European foreign policy in case if we well, disagree with the United States. Well, uh, I agree with you. I was very much impressed by the, the communique by Total when the, the, the sanctions were announced, where Total said, well, first we have 80% of our business in, in dollar, so that could be conceivably addressed. <laughs> Second, we have one third of our shareholders that are based in the US, so that's, they would lose it. And third, we have the US market, so there's no choice for us. So, and, and I think that's quite convincing. Now, what it tells us is that as, as a power, uh, if it is an aggression, because the US pulled out of an agreement, yeah. we didn't pull out of an agreement, then there is a question of you know, what kind of political response can be given to that. Uh, uh, what, you know, how far can we accept that the US dictates, and you know, there was this issue about the bank withdrawal in Germany by uh, the Iranian state that was, uh, you know, led Germany, led the Bundesbank to change its rules. How far can we uh, accept and, you know, at what point do we have to take measures to respond on a different, yeah. on a different level? Not directly. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And secondary sanctions may evolve more and more as a tool in American foreign policy. I'm really one of the German opponents of Nord Stream 2. But uh, Congress has passed a bill which allows the, the executive branch to impose sanctions uh, to all the companies, particularly German companies, dealing and working together with, you know, with Gazprom and on the Nord Stream 2 project. So this would be another uh, uh, important example for imposing American will on a European project. I, I'm not in favor of the project, but this is a, would be an, another clash. Okay, I think there are many people wanting to uh, take the floor. I think the first were there. Yeah, sir, allow me a provocative question. When I hear the narrative here in the room, it's about battlefield, it's about sanctions, it's about retaliation, it's about war. It's a doom scenario. Uh, when you add uh, an S to the geostrategic positioning of P GPS, the, um, the, Mr. Moise spoke about DNA of Europe. Europe needs a new GPS, a new navigation system, it's a new narrative. What about, uh, we talk about power, we talk about profit. What about the word peace? What about, uh, there's so much noise, overload, a lot of people are burned out, stressed out. So, <laughs> I, uh, with all respect, uh, there's a lot of knowledge in this room and in Europe, but where's the wisdom, sir? Thank you. Um, Nicola. Yeah, a reaction and a question. Um, Nicolas Veron at Google. Uh, the reaction is to uh, Mr. Rodgen. Uh, you said uh, no way to build financial sovereignty for Europe. Well, there is a way to build financial sovereignty, which, is, uh, which starts with uh, completing the banking union and uh, the capital markets union. And Mr. Van Overtvelt, I think, gave a very compelling plea on the capital markets union side. Completing banking union, as we know, is held back by many things, but one of them is very parochial opposition in some corners of Germany. So why don't we start by that? Uh, the question is to uh, Maria. Uh, you mentioned in passing that you were 
happy to expand on uh, uh, the Commission's idea to reform the WTO. This is crucially important. Can you give us a bit more? Thank you. Over there. Uh, Elena Rabakova, Bruegel. I'd like a uh, question on the, can you elaborate on the balance of power between the US and Europe? Because it appears to me that Europe has a lot of power, soft power, that it doesn't dare to acknowledge. Where it's lacking power is versus the US, especially with the weaponization of the, of the dollar, you know, with the political process in the US. And um, in that respect, we're talking about lack of consensus in Europe, but if you look at the consensus on the foreign policy in the US, between the Senate, House, Republicans, White House, State Department, it's clear there's also no consensus. So is there really no room for Europe to assert some of the power, soft power versus the US? Okay, another one, yeah, over there. And nice one here you. because I was unfair with the, that side. Yeah. A graduate from the College of Europe as well. Uh, regarding Europe and power, I would also like to uh, ask whether you would see that Europe has um, potential for power, uh, bearing in mind the attractiveness of its market. That's uh, longer, an older theory, but um, more recently and more close to home regarding its regulatory um, regulatory attempts that have global. Uh, effects like, for example, the GDPR and in, uh, in regards to his competition policy as well. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Hi. I just wanted to, for someone to elaborate more on uh, actually negotiation uh, of Brexit and how this could actually, um, actually make uh, the EU narrative uh, stronger in the way that uh, we are walking towards a always more likely, uh, more likely no-deal scenario. And that means uh, that in a way we are protecting uh, the, the, the single market, our single market has a value. It's, um, uh, and there are some privileges in uh, being within uh, the EU, which we are actually all agreeing in defending. Uh, I mean, the EU 27. <laughs> and um, this is actually something that we could draw on in order for actually to assert some power of the EU against uh, third countries. In a way, there, is, uh, a, there are some benefits, and also the UK is, is coming to terms with acknowledging the fact uh, that being within the EU has its benefits, and we are, we are uh, all on the same page, the 27 country, in protecting them and actually um, in a stronger way than we would have uh, um, agreeing to Cameron's deal, for instance. Thank you. Let's go back to the, to the panel. Sorry, you, you will have your, your, your turn. Um, there was a question addressed to you specifically, Marina. The mic is gone, yeah. Thank you. Yes, the question was on what we are actually doing about WTO reform. And before I said that we are talking to a great many different uh, players, but uh, we are, uh, of course, also preparing concrete proposals to make the WTO more, more, more uh, relevant and, and adaptive to a, to a changing world. Um, so we have other already made or will make proposals on, for example, level playing field issues. That means addressing subsidies and the role of state-owned enterprises. Uh, we want to address barriers to services and investments. For example, forced technology transfers. 
we want to have a new approach to development that is more flexible and more tailor-made to, to different developing countries' needs. Um, we also want to better enforce the rules that we have today, better monitoring, uh, larger transparency and, and a proper notification to be done at the WTO. Um, and we are working on reforms to unblock the, the um, blockage now of appointments to the appellate body. Um, we hope that reforms in one phase could unblock the, the nominations and then we could also in a second phase look more into substance and, and what can be changed. Because the Americans are not wrong about everything. There are some point of criticism where we think they are right and that we, where we can work together. Uh, we also want to make sure that we get away from this stalling in negotiations that we have seen, um, unfortunately. Uh, we have not seen many uh, negotiated outcomes. Uh, and here we think that the model is to let countries uh, move in different speeds so that we can get away from one country blocking everybody for based on some narrow interests. So I think those are, those are main things and actually quite big ideas. Um, I hope we will be successful. On, on Brexit, because you, you raised the, the issue, uh, the first point is that it is a fatal destruction uh, for Great Britain uh, to be totally obsessed uh, with the issue of uh, disentangling herself from Europe at a time the world is knocking very loudly at the door of Europe. The second point I would make is that I have been taking part in the last few months uh, to a, a small working group uh, between French and British uh, on the subject of defense after Brexit. What will we do? What will happen? And uh, one of the most striking conclusions of that working group is that we disagreed on priorities. Even the two closest countries when it comes to defense, uh, at different priorities. Uh, for the British, the priority was the Russian threat uh, above all others. For the French, it was the terrorist threat. And uh, it was very difficult to reconcile the two positions uh, when they started from such different uh, priorities. Thank you, please. Well, yeah. just on continuing on, 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 on Brexit and that particular sort of thought that, well, without the Brits, we would be stronger the one way or the other. To, no, I'm sort of exaggerating in, for in the in sake in of the way, argument. Way, I would say I would be very careful with that. I mean, f the Brits are, of course, messing things up for themselves beyond belief at the moment. And how they will exit this, how they will exit the Brexit mess remains to be seen. But, but if you look at the global power and the global weight of Europe, there's no question that we will be significantly weaker. Um, the UK is together with France the only serious military power in terms of reach. It is the, I would say, by, f now you have to be careful with Dominic is here, but they, the, the, the number one or the together with someone else, the number one diplomatic power in the world. They are by far the number one intelligence power, European power in the world. They are in an area that I'm dealing with quite a lot, the by far 
leading cybersecurity and cyber operations power in Europe. So if we take these assets which are fairly significant and detract them from us, we are significantly weaker, no question about that. And, and what worries me apart from that is of course that uh, the UK is not gonna sink into the Atlantic disappear. The UK is gonna be there. The UK is gonna be an actor. They're not gonna sort of go to sleep after this. So how do we organize the interaction between what we manage to do, for better or worse, and that not insignificant European actor that in spite of those sort of differences that are particular to there more than those, is more aligned to us on the global issues or not. That needs to be addressed at some point in time. Uh, and you can add to that the financial issues, but I, I leave those. No, but you may want to react to that and also to what uh, Nicola uh, viciously um, addressed to you. Yes, absolutely viciously. I'm, I'm very much in favor of the completion of the banking union because it is in the interest of Europe, the Eurozone, and it's in the particular interest of Germany to have, uh, on behalf of the resilience of our currency. So I'm in favor of that. I'm in favor of uh, establishing a European deposit insurance scheme, for example, and other things. Uh, I admit that this perhaps is not the overwhelming uh, German activity <laughs> in recent months, but this is my position, and I think it will get better on this, uh, on this field. However, I do not think that by this, if we had accomplished this, that we would be protected from American influence uh, uh, via secondary sanctions. So I think these are two completely important issues which, are, which do not have a, a linkage. Um, perhaps a uh, few other brief remarks. The positive narrative, yes, of course. I think there, there is, it, in a way, it's, it's clear seeing all the doom and gloom we have talked about. I think it's quite clear that there is no one else in the world who is ready or able to pursue our interests. So I very much agree with the wording and language of President Macron. It's really about to create a l'Europe qui protège. And who else will do that? The Americans not in an unconditional way as they have done during the Cold War because geopolitics have shifted and changed. So there is a necessity uh, from a citizen's point of view that Europe uh, uh, develop in order to protect being able uh, to protect the citizens uh, by pursuing our specific European interests, which are not adverse to the American in general, but we see more and more cases where we have differences, and so we have to increase, to care, I would not say sovereignty, it's a, it's a big word, but to care for our own interests and put uh, substance into that. One, perhaps, a, a good news in my analysis to the, to the uh, American foreign policy under Trump. It's, of course, the, the mere negation of the traditional post-war foreign policy on the one side. On the other side, I, I remain quite sure that this style and substance of foreign policy under Trump is very much linked to this person. And that it does not reverberate mm -hmm. 
uh, in Washington, in Congress, but that there is still a lot of continuity. So there is hope that this style substance, particularly with regard to Europe, NATO, and so on, will end uh, with this president. I think we have to see that. So it's, it's a period now, and it's not a, 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 a complete, it, it's not an American shift, I would say, in foreign policy we see. I think we can connect to what is there uh, uh, in Washington and in the country of, of a deep relationship. And Brexit, only one thought, not for the future. I think we will have, particularly in Brussels, but also in the capitals, the debate after a divorce bill has been passed and so on, if there could be a structured, deep um, cooperation between France, Britain and Germany on foreign and security policy. I consider this to be a positive accelerator in the development of a European foreign policy, but I think this will cause a, a fundamental controversy whether we stick to a 27 EU only approach or reach out to a third country which has massive assets uh, uh, to, to provide for in foreign security policy. May I uh, just add a footnote to what you, you just said, which I think is absolutely fundamental. Uh, I think that we need to start thinking, as I said before, how we keep the core of our institutional uh, architecture, but at the same time, how we don't fall into traps. PESCO is a typical trap in which we have fallen because of the treaty. I fully agree we have to get used that we have more Schengen approach, uh, approaches, and especially in this area of uh, foreign and security policy, and, and Schengen, as Schengen... By Schengen, you mean viable geometry, right? What I mean is exactly, even with Brexit reaching an agreement between uh, Germany, France, and, uh, and, uh, the UK? And, the, and the UK, Germany, France, and the UK, on a very concrete area. This was the, the origin of Schengen. And, you know, you don't, yeah, but... Well, not without the UK. Not, not with, we need the UK. In uh, security and foreign yeah, affairs, yeah. I fully mm. agree that we no, need. No, I was so speaking of Schengen. We, yeah, okay, but Schengen, why do I mean Schengen? Because Schengen was outside the treaties, yeah. was outside the institutions. And I think that we have to come to terms with the fact that we will have to build core or out core groups. It's not possible to go at 27 or even with, and PESCO is a good example, reinforced cooperation will be useful in certain areas, but in other areas you will have to have, and instead of, and I'm, I'm Spanish, and of course you would have Italy or Spain or this, but you will need a core, and in this case of foreign security policy, you think that this would not be, I'm not saying that it's not the only uh, way you can approach it, but it would be. What I mean by this is that I think that we have to start thinking outside the box of what has been done until now and what the treaty means. And there are, as I say, there are examples for the better or for the worse. I would like to respond to a gentleman uh, over there that spoke about 
uh, people being uh, burned out on this idea of trust. Well, you know, let's go back to what we have been discussing. Here the, in the post-World War II, and by the way, uh, uh, Dominique has mentioned present as the creation. I always go to the Atlantic Charter, prosperity mm -hmm. as the core basis of international, yeah. of, of geopolitics is in the Atlantic Charter, and this is what Europe attempt, attempts. So uh, it's not that we would, should, should have started by something different, is that the, the internal market was about prosperity, about prosperity, about rebuilding after war. And this is the first idea, is that the European construction, we cannot forget, it's to overcome war, order. This is the first. The second thing is this idea of law and institutions. But the third is technocracy. And the, the time of technocrats deciding on behalf of the citizens is also gone. I mean, citizens want to opine. And they, I mean, there is this misplaced mistrust to the experts, misplaced mistrust to the technocrats that is, that is there in the background. All this has to do with finding uh, new basis for re, uh, revamping the, 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 the meta-political basis, the philosophical basis, which is the enlightenment basis adapted to this world of cyber, of uh, artificial intelligence as a way, because what we know, we Europeans, we really know is that there's uh, each man for, for himself is not a good uh, starting point for international relations. Just one word on uh, what Norbert uh, said. Uh, I agree with you. Uh, there's, uh, I hope there is life after Donald Trump. It's not the end of history, but time is of the essence. Uh, we can probably afford two more years of Trump. Six more years of Trump uh, would be a terrible thing uh, for the international system. And from that standpoint, uh, the midterm elections uh, that are coming as an important step are probably one of the most important uh, midterm election uh, transatlantic relations have known in their entire history. Thank you. Let's go back to the, the floor, and then I think we should be moving towards uh, also an agenda. Uh, so there was someone I promised to, yeah, to be speaking first. Yes, please. Again. Are you? You. No, don't touch. Substitute, don't touch. Okay. Can he have another mic? So in the meantime, let Yes, thank you very much, it's Mr. Nothing, Chairman. Nothing personal. No. So, Panos Gredis, uh, European Public Law Organization. Just to put uh, something related to the future for shaping the EU geostrategic position, uh, 
and the question goes to the panel. Recently, we had uh, President Macron speaking to the diplomats of France, saying that uh, Europe should go closer with Russia. Europe also should uh, finish the, world, the war in Libya and the Middle East. And also very recently, the president of the People's Party, Mr. Daul and Mr. Werner, met uh, Chancellor Merkel, and they agreed that Mr. Werner will be spitzenkandidat for the upcoming European Parliament election. How this could shape uh, the Union's geostrategic position in the volatile world is my question. Thank you. Thank you. Excuse me. Dominic Jean. Steve Erlanger from the New York Times. I, I was remembering your, your challenge about Trump, and, and there is one thing I think it's worth saying which hasn't been registered here. When you look at his administration's responses to Europe, to Russia, to Crimea, to NATO, there's nothing John McCain would complain about. In fact, John McCain would applaud it. I think there's a great danger in confusing the tweets from the White House with American policy. I mean, it's not just that we're schizophrenic, even his own staff is figuring out ways to undermine him and move around him. John Bolton went out of his way to get the NATO communique finished and signed before Trump arrived, so Trump couldn't, couldn't mess with it, right? So one should remember it's not just a question of continuity, or deep state, there is an active consensus in America, by and large, to preserve transatlantic ties. The other thing I, I would simply say is, you're economists, you know what negotiations are like. Trump's been very clear, read his book. I mean, he negotiates like a monster, that's his tactic. You see it with Turkey, you see it with Europe, with cars, with Germany. You have to fight back. It's very simple. That's what he expects. That's what North Korea is. I think it's even more horrifying, frankly, with right now with the Palestinians and what he's done with UNRWA. But it is all about a, a negotiation. It is not about principle, per se. And the last thing I would say is he is asking a lot of questions, and I'm no great defender of Trump, that a lot of Americans are asking. Why do we have so many troops in Europe? Why do we have so many troops in South Korea? Why are we paying everyone's bills? These are perfectly reasonable questions so long after the war. Um, so the last thing is, remember the drift started under Obama. There was a, a lot of criticism about yeah. uh, American retrenchment under one of the most popular democratic presidents that Europe has ever embraced. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, over there, yeah. Um, Bernadette Segal, I'm the former General Secretary of the European Trade Union Confederation. I would like to go back on the question of trade. I think 99.99% uh, .99 of the people in this room um, are just thinking we are right and those who don't believe in trade are wrong. And I think we should look around and, uh, and try to speak to those who uh, do not consider that trade has been good for them. And instead of trying to convince them that we are right and they are wrong, try to do something to have fair trade with social clause and environment as well. And I haven't heard that word in, in, the, uh, in the panel or even this morning. 
And I think we should seriously consider that this is and could be a real threat uh, to the economy, to the job certainly, to democracy. But we have to take that seriously and speak to these people who haven't seen the benefit of it. It's not because we believe it is good for them, that it is good for them. So let's just um, open the doors and windows. You're right to point out that there are not only external challenges as we, you know, <laughs> that we address because that was the topic of the panel, but there are also internal dimension for sure. Who else wants to, yes, yeah. No, no, well, over there. Uh, thank you, Professor Linson for the MNRC. I was a little late, so I don't know whether my question was already answered. Uh, don't you think that the EU should first deal with its own chronic internal dysfunctions before allowing itself to give advice and setting an example to others? And um, the other thing is that, to my mind, uh, I think uh, the time is ripe to prepare the mindsets of citizens worldwide for a transition to new global governance, inviting coordinated, collective, citizen-institution collaboration on an equal footing with equal opportunities. We are faced with a global network of interconnected global challenges that can only be appropriately managed by first setting up a new global governance infrastructure. This is becoming increasingly recognized and mainstream. Thank you. Uh, yeah, Suman Berry. Uh, Suman Berry from Bruegel, but uh, based in India. Um, a question both for um, Maria, but also for Jean. Uh, Maria, you talk about these proposals for uh, reforming um, the WTO, and, and the point is seen from the perspective of China is this like Turkey's voting for Christmas? More, more generally, how would you get together a coalition of particularly uh, Asian economies to support some of the proposals you talked about? And Jean, in, earlier in the panel, you talked about, as it were, in effect, social dumping, about the problems of, of, in, of trade relations with, uh, with poorer countries. Now, you know, the old doctrine used to be that basically the gains of trade are maximized when you are de trading with countries that are very different from you. But the previous discussion also, or the previous commentator also basically talked about fair trade. So has the debate in Europe also moved on to fair trade rather than the neoclassical gains from trade? And is that, an is that going to set the uh, p political framework for what we can expect to see? Okay, I think I should close the, the floor now and come back to the, to the panel. Um, just to answer the question, because it was asked to me, I, I, I didn't think I, I said that. I, I, um, uh, it's true that uh, there are, uh, and that was a point made by Bernadette Segal, there are, there are more uh, questions and, and uh, you know, disputes about, uh, about trade and uh, but that has to do largely with internal policies, um, the internal policies that we have not put in place to address the distributional consequences of trade. Um, what we're seeing, I would say, but that's not the sort of traditional model, 
is the, the accelerated catching up of countries that benefit from technological transfers. And that's a type of trade that does not necessarily have the same effect as the traditional uh, trade gains from trade liberalization. Uh, so, and you know, the erosion of technological rents that we had in advanced countries and the very fast erosion of those rents is something that changes the political economy of, uh, of trade. And that's very much what we're seeing in the relationship with China and that affects the US, but also that affects, uh, that affects Europe. Now, uh, we have a series of questions and I would wish the panelists to answer them, but I, I, I would like to add another uh, question. And this question is sort of more of an agenda type. Um, uh, you both uh, emphasize the fact that we have to think differently in terms of the uh, institutional architecture of, of Europe, that you know, the, the EU of 27 is not the right vehicle to address some of the challenges we're facing, especially on the security side. Um, so that was sort of the broad consideration about the change in the, in the structure of the EU. There is a, and it's important, and I think it's very important that we think in terms of you know, what, the, what, the, what the architecture, what the type of architecture we should be considering um, also after Brexit, uh, with the internal division there are, uh, with the disagreement there are on a number of new priorities, you know, how to address that? Is it, uh, should we be moving towards a more flexible structure? The other more narrow dimension has to do with what I call the silos at the start, which is that, you know, even if we consider policies that are the responsibility of the 27, they were conceived in silos that do not communicate with each other. So we have trade, we have, uh, we have the macro policy, we have the financial policy, we have the policy of the ECB and the policy of the, uh, uh, of the member states or the, uh, of, the, uh, of the union. And, you know, in a world which is more transactional, which is more power-based, those silos are impediments to uh, addressing issues um, in, a, in a sort of uh, more coherent way. Uh, are there changes that should be considered to the way those policies are being conducted? And to be very concrete, you know, new elections uh, to the European Parliament are coming up, a new commission will be uh, put in charge. What are the sort of uh, conclusions that we should draw from this new situation for the structure of the new commission and the agenda for the new commission? So those, were, would, those would be my, my questions. Who would wish to start? Maria. Well, thank you. I'd like to start with a question put by a lady over there about uh, also those who do not necessarily... Yeah, it does. Okay. Um, trade is not necessarily something everybody believes in. Uh, first of all, I, I don't know if it's a question of believing or not. So, I mean, we have facts and, and a lot of empirical evidence that it does help us prosper economically. But, of course, not every person at every moment uh, may benefit. And that's why it is, of course, enormously important to... to, uh, to in to invest in people and make people more resilient and less afraid of change, more capable of adapting to a, to a, to a maybe scary, rapidly changing, changing world. Um, so that's what we have to do. We have to be better at sharing benefits. Um, there is no contradiction between having an you know, equal income distribution and, and being open to trade. I mean, the country I know best managed to, to combine these two, for example. Uh, and we have to keep um, 
investing in people, in our long-term competitiveness, uh, in research and innovation. And I think you can see a lot of these things, these conclusions are also translated into the new EU budget, uh, which is currently being uh, negotiated between the, our institutions. It's a lot about stepping up investments in, in research, in strategic infrastructure, um, digital transformation and, and a sing single market to make sure that we can grow also in the future. Uh, but I would also like to point out that, that our, our, trade, our trade agreements are not at all just about slashing tariffs anymore. They are, they are much wider and they are, I would say, um, value-based to, to a large extent. Um, it's, it's, it has become a key foreign policy tool as well. Um, and you can, see, you can see it because they include binding commitments uh, as concerns core labor and environmental uh, standards to prevent the race to the bottom. Um, and this brings both the EU and our, our trading partners uh, onto, to, onto paths of, of sustainable growth and value-based trade. Um, and this is something that, that we are crowd quite proud of. And I think this is very much in line with, with the EU and the way the EU has worked uh, during its you know, 60 years of, of history. We managed to combine trade openness with a common set of rules uh, to bring about peace and prosperity, stability uh, to the benefit of all our citizens. Uh, I think we can be proud uh, and it's fun to be able to, I think, maybe try to end on a more positive note than in the beginning of this, this conference. Um, because we, we have shown that countries can come together, pool their, their resources, sovereignty, decide on common rules, um, and, that way, and that way be stronger. Um, so the EU, of course, believes in, in global solutions to solve global problems, and, and, and we really have to, if we agree that the rules need to be changed, we have to do it together. Uh, and as we have proven that we can do it in the past, and we just have to keep fighting for that in the future, because to just give up and say that this new world is a world of anarchy and disorder, uh, no, we, we can't. We just have to keep fighting for new and better rules. Thank you. Thank you. <clears throat> First, uh, quickly to two questions that were raised, uh, one on Macron and uh, Russia. Um, I don't think one should read Macron's opening to Moscow as uh, any kind of reversal of alliance. Uh, something like, let's uh, uh, get together against American hegemon. This is not at all uh, what it was about. It was about realpolitik, uh, recognizing the fact that in one part of the world where France wants to play a part because it's so close and so important, the Middle East, you can't do any longer without Russia. If there has been a substituting, a substituting moment, uh, it is that Russia has de facto replaced the United States as the country that counts if you want uh, to move towards peace in some parts of the Middle East from uh, Syria to even, though that's very far-fetched, the uh, Israel-Palestine conflict. So recognizing the reality. The second question about uh, uh, Donald Trump 
and the continuity uh, between Donald Trump and Obama. Steve, you are absolutely right, except that uh, words are weapons. And some personalities are really different. I mean, I remember uh, personally debating uh, with uh, John Bolton a few years ago, and he was himself a very different kind of Republican and US diplomat. He was saying, we in America now are no longer in the world of carrots. We are only and will be only in the world of sticks. Uh, and this is clearly not uh, what Barack Obama uh, was about. Now to come to uh, the questions, uh, some of the questions uh, which Jean raised, uh, I, I would add one dimension which is of an ethical nature. Um, one of the most important factors that has occurred to Europe lately has been the evolution in Italy. One of the founding father of the Union where some elected leaders speak and act the way Mussolini did uh, uh, 80 years ago. This is not neutral. This is eating at the core of what the European Union has been about, a gentleman's club of values. And from that standpoint, I would say that, um, if you remember, Madeleine Albright in 2000 spoke of an alliance of democracies. It didn't go very far. My government, France, was very much against it. Uh, I'm not sure we should recreate within the European Union or within the world a club of classical liberal democracies in a formal way. But there is something which is a reality. Among the G7, there are four countries that still are faithful to uh, what the G5, G7 spirit was about when it was created. France and Germany, Canada, the human side of North America, and Japan, the Western member of a the Asian West. And there's something that unite these four countries and which I think should be helpful in the five years to come uh, to define something uh, more positive. Well, just briefly, first let's say, to allude to what you started by saying, there have been silos. But uh, we now live in a world where, <laughs> I don't know if the silos are collapsing or coming together or whatever they are, but clearly we need to merge our thinking from the geopolitical to the geoeconomic to the geotechnological to the military, see the domains together and see where is Europe exposed, where are the risks, where can we increase our resilience, perhaps even increase our powers. And I think there's a role for uh, think tanks and independent minds in order to give some impetus, an input into the policy processes that by necessity So you're adding always, to, the, to the list. I'm adding to the list. By, by necessity it takes, takes somewhat longer time. There will be profound implications. Uh, I, I don't, unfortunately, I don't disagree with Norbert. 
on um, some of the things that are likely to happen with sort of Paris and Berlin and London perhaps coming together and things. And the Americans will play on that. The Americans will love it. But it also means that the investment that we've been doing to build up sort of European institutions and procedures and Brussels and whatever will come to, if not nothing, but not too much. Uh, and that in its turn opens up risks of fragmentation on the uh, peripheries and on the margins of Europe in a way that is not entirely helpful for, for, for stability. But these are issues that are there and require some profound thoughts. We talked about the global picture, but um, just add the, the regional picture. I mean, the Balkans is not, there, there are disturbing things happening in the Balkans that could blow up far more than some people are aware of. The Middle East, we haven't alluded to, but no one here is particularly complacent about the dangers that we see here. Africa has been alluded to. The cyber domain, which I mentioned, where Europe is to largely and out of the picture, but where the game is playing, played every day, every hour, between the more major powers. Uh, these are things that concerns us, or should concern us even more, as we think about these institutional and intellectual challenges that we are facing. Thank you. Very briefly on addressing first the dysfunctionalities before projecting our, uh, our idea of the world, what we stand for. I think that this is an old, uh, a, an old debate and frankly, I think we cannot afford it. We are where we are and we have to act on different fronts and it's messy and it's not rational and it's not Kelsenian, but this is, this is where we are. Now, uh, another comment on, on Erlanger's comment. I think that, as I said before, Trump has destroyed, for the moment, w one of the cornerstones of the institutional architecture, which is the presidency of the United States of America. As Carl says, you know, tweets count. I'm sorry, tweets count, especially in a world of perception. So there is continuity. Gates was there saying exactly what Trump says, but it's not the same thing. I, I mean, I, there is continuity, but now, on what you have asked us of, uh, of just one comment on Macron. It's a fantastic speech, but two things. On Europe, uh, I mean, first, he doesn't speak about Latin America. He just mentions Brazil. We haven't spoken about Latin America. Latin America, in terms of principles and values and the we don't reach critical mass in multilateral, in multilateral debates without Latin Americans. And my suggestion for the French, and you are not any longer conseiller, but is French. that, yeah, okay, you know, he mentions Brazil. Brazil will be, during the, the next presidency of the G7, will remain a big mess. But you have Mexico. Why not invite Mexico? Uh, that's the second thing on Europe. Uh, Macron bets on changing the treaty. Ah, good luck. I mean, changing the treaty, I don't think it's feasible. I mean, it's rational, it's the best option, but you know what? We are in a very messy situation. And uh, Carl says, well, there are dangers. Of course there are dangers. I'm Spanish. I would not gladly accept, and you know that, because we have discussed, but you know what? I think that we have to plant the seed, and today, and PESCO is a very good example of how the seed within the treaties doesn't really work. 
And on the security, you have all the aspect of defense that is internal market. We need to foster this aspect of internal market of security of cooperation uh, that is economic cooperation where you can have many more and you have a, a I mean, the kind of PESCO. But I think that, that we need to dare to think of the outside the treaties. Now, on the silos, uh, you know what? Silos mean nothing, but we are facing the, these elections, and after the elections, we will be in a complex situation. The, the European Parliament will uh, be more fragmented. There will be maybe a majority of, of uh, the, the central parties, but the others will be very vociferous, and this will count, because as we said, uh, I mean, perceptions matter. The, the, uh, the way the commission is structured today, we have real problems because we will have commissioners that are, I mean, appointed by the governments of Poland, of Hungary, of Czech Republic, of, ah, you, you name it, Italy, you name it. And, and this is the, this idea of Macron, which is, uh, which is the progressive Europe. How do you make progressive Europe in the commission with this? So, in my opinion, the big position here is to get a new Van Rompuy at the helm of the European Council. Because Van Rompuy, and, and you know it very well at Bruegel, Van Rompuy was instrumental in getting the reforms of the Euro going forward. But he kept behind the curtains, he didn't want to get the medals, he, he had this ability to bring people together. We need that because we will have to bridge many, many, I mean, many waves. And, and I think that this is the key position in the next, uh, in the next period. And of course, I'm sorry, but the counter example would be Mr. Mr. Tusk. Uh, as, as Thank you. Yes. Norbert? Okay, J just really briefly. I think the, the, the European-Russia policy is an example that a European policy is possible. I, I consider this to be a, a successful policy, and perhaps it's also an example that a European foreign policy will only emerge uh, if Germany is part of it, as it has been in the Russia policy field. For, to, to Stephen, I would, you, you made the, the case for fighting back. I, I take a more dovish approach. <laughs> I would say in the first time, let's, let's prefer damage limitation because rhetoric has its uh, damaging effects, of course. And I, I fear if there is a second term, I think we have more to opt uh, to resort to fighting back. And the last thing I would like to, to underscore again, I would never uh, propose anything to be considered as opposed to the EU. I think the core question is, if we agree that a European foreign security policy has urgently to emerge, how do we organize this process? Only relying on the institutions we have on the 27 uh, member states level, given the value and interests uh, uh, divides we have there, or can we imagine a parallel, a double-track approach 
of a group of willing, of a, of a, yeah, the group of the willings, uh, which also strives at, uh, at, at um, helping to come to, into existence such a process for the entire EU and the 72, uh, 27 member states. Thank you very much. Uh, on your last suggestion, that's something Bruegel uh, should and will uh, contribute to, uh, but as economists, um, today we had, a, I think, very fruitful, sometimes messy, not extremely optimistic discussion, uh, but that's a discussion we needed to have, and I would wish to thank all the panelists for that.